Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of the American Theatre Wing and XM Satellite Radio. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the Director, Michael Mayer. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? We've counted something like 10 Broadway credits and currently running off-Broadway at the Atlantic Theatre Company, Spring Awakening. The Broadway credits include Night Mother, After the Fall, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Uncle Vanya, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, Sideman, A View from the Bridge, and others. Very uh, diverse background. We'll get into that a little bit later. But Spring Awakening is a very interesting off-Broadway show, which was first presented in 1891. It's been rather modernized. Rather than me struggling to tell the audience what the story is, what is Spring Awakening? Uh, Spring Awakening is a play. It was the first play written by um, Frank Wedekind, who was a German playwright and poet and famous womanizer and artisty, arty type um, in the late 19th century in Bavaria. And he wrote a play that was about his experience as a young man growing up in a very repressive society and about his sexual awakening and the sexual awakening of the kids that he grew up with. In its original version, very shocking for its time, very graphic for its time. So shocking, in fact, that it was not produced for many, many years. And, in fact, it was never produced in English until 1963 when the National Theatre of Great Britain had the very first performance of Spring Awakening in a translation by Edward Bond. But it's got a, it's a and very still subject to censorship at that time by the Lord Chamberlain. Exactly. And, in fact, we had trouble getting this production on. It, it took us about seven years mm. working on it. It's, it is a really frank depiction of what happens to a bunch of kids who don't know what's happening to their bodies to their spirits, to their um, to their souls, really, in a, in a world run by adults who are too afraid of sex themselves to really discuss the, it. The adults, including parents, teachers, clergy. Exactly. And specifically those three mm-hmm. groupings, yeah. And the there are three basic kids. There's about a dozen altogether, but three mm-hmm. who are the central characters in the show. That's right. Um, Melchior, who is the lead, he's kind of, he's the rebel. He's, um, if, any, if anyone knows the way we were, mm-hmm. I, I often refer to him as the Hubble Gardener <laughs> of uh, Spring Awakening. He's the golden boy who has more smarts than most of the kids, certainly more gumption, and he recognizes that things aren't really the way they ought to be, and he's the one who sort of pushes the envelope uh, his best friend is Moritz, who is all a Twitter because his hormones are kicking in. He's having wet dreams for the first time, and he finds them terribly confusing and frightening. He's struggling so with school and the pressure, enormous pressure put on him by his father to succeed in school. But he seems incapable of doing his schoolwork because he's up all night with these terrible, to him, terrible fantasies about um, the mystery between, um, you know, women's legs. Um, Then there's a third character, third main character, a young girl named Vendla, who is just sort of blooming physically, um, and she really wants information 
about how babies are made and what's happening to her. And she has a mother who is completely incapable of giving her any help. As we find out in the very opening of the show. Exactly. Now, we've run through the plot of Spring Awakening, but of course, this production is not simply Frank Vedekin's Spring Awakening. This is Stephen Sater and Duncan Sheiks and Michael Mayer's Spring Awakening. So let's talk about this production and and how it's become a musical. A music, yeah, that's what <laughs> people, scholars... After that description, yeah, exactly. he, he say musical. So. Exactly. And it's not just any old music, it's kind of like a rock opera. It is a rock, it, it's kind of a rock opera, except it's not really an opera because the scenes are discreet from the songs. In fact, one of the, one of the things that makes this a unique music theater piece is that the songs don't actually forward the story at all. Um, they function as kind of a window into the emotional life of the characters so that the scenes which take place in a small German town in 1891 and we realize those scenes pretty literally with um, period costumes and um, uh, an intentionally slightly stilted kind of dialogue to give you the sense that it's not today um, and push comes to shove at a certain point in the scene and an emotion rises up in the character and instead of doing sort of the Rogers and Hammerstein the conventional musical theater trope of then voiced giving voice to those emotions and communicating through song to the other character on stage who then will respond in kind or will respond in dialogue after the song is over we launch into a very contemporary kind of alternative rock sound and the characters then sing. They pull out a microphone in many cases out of their little jackets or um, sometimes there's a mic on a stand brought in front of the girls in their, in their long um, period skirts and they wail these emotional throbbing um, songs and then Everything gets buttoned back up again, and they're back into the play. Well, why, why the use of the handheld wireless mics that, that they pull out of the costumes? I wanted to make it really clear that the interior life of these kids is um, kind of like the rock concert in their fantasy. So that liberated from the terrible oppression that they're experiencing in their lives, this microphone, which is quite phallic, actually, and in the hands of those little girls, kind of a terrifying object, right? Um, and in the boys, the ownership over their phallus, uh, it, it's an empowering tool which gives them the right to sing their own song, in a way. It's, they're making their own kind of music. And, of course, they do have body mics throughout the show, so you don't really need it for the amplification. It's more for the, the style of the show, I guess, right? That's exactly right. In fact, there are a couple times when we, when the, the um, handheld mic is actually just a prop, and we're miking them um, with the lavaliers that are, you know, the body mics. You said very quickly that this is a show that's taken seven years to get on, and unlike the original script of Spring Awakening, it wasn't a case of censorship or fear of subject matter necessarily. But this show has been, this has been announced several times <laughs> at several different theaters. What has been the journey of this show? 
It's it's been a real trip, literally and figuratively. About seven years ago, the playwright Stephen Sater, with whom I had collaborated on a couple of workshops, came to me with this idea. It's a play I loved since I was in college and first encountered it. Um, and he had this idea of making it a musical. I thought it sounded really interesting, and I loved the idea of Duncan Sheik writing the songs because he has such a contemporary fresh sound. It did, it wouldn't, I knew that the songs wouldn't sound like anything you would hear on Broadway or off-Broadway for that matter, and I knew that the songs might be something you'd want to put on your iPod, which would be a great goal. We developed it first with La Jolla Playhouse. We did a five-day little mini workshop singing about t- ten songs, I think, in a couple of scenes. Annie Hamburger was the artistic director at that point. And she brought us out there to do that. That following summer, we went to the Sundance Theater Lab under Robert Blacker. He brought us out and and Philip Himberg. And we did a three-week workshop at that point. One of my um, colleagues from New York, Jim Carnahan, who's a casting director and um, helps with development. Artistic development development at Roundabout. That's right, at Roundabout. He was... He came out to Utah, and he saw it and thought that it would be really great to start working on with the roundabout because they wanted to start developing new work. And I was at the time an associate artist there. I'm now the um, director in residence at the roundabout. And we then did two three-week workshops at the roundabout. And all during this time, we started casting our net for young talent. And from the first roundabout reading, the the young girl who plays Vendla in our production, Leah Michelle, she was 14, and that's where she started. So she's been with the show for five years. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that, she's grown into it. How, how has the show changed since the early days of it, over these seven years? I think the major change that was made was that, well, in the original play, there's this weird ending which is what makes it, which is what categorizes it, I think, in a lot of scholars' minds as an uh, expressionist play or proto-German expressionist play. That's where the strange masked man the appears masked, at the end, yes, who the we masked. haven't seen earlier in the show. We've never seen him. We never see him again. He shows up at the end. I won't give too much of the plot away, but he shows up at, at a very critical moment in the life of Melchior. And sort of for, uh, urges him to to make a different kind of decision than the one that he's faced with at the moment. And Melchior says, who are you? And mm. the masked man says, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't tell the audience either. We have no idea who he is. And he and Melchior come to, come to an agreement, and then the play ends. And we originally conceived the masked man as kind of an MC. So he was in the play from the beginning, sort of talking us through all of the scenes, introducing the characters. He would sing. He was the one who would sometimes hand off the microphone to the character. And what we discovered was that the music itself functioned like the masked man did. So it was redundant to have both of them. And that's the biggest change. So you you eliminated the masked man? Completely, yeah. He's gone. Mm -hmm. But fairly late in this developmental process, as, as I understand it, Bill T. Jones joined the team. Mm. And and that 
is certainly an interesting choice. A noted modern dance choreographer, Bill T. Jones and Artie Zane Company, for literally decades, mm-hmm. but not someone who'd been doing theatrical choreography. Um, or specifically for shows, his work is theatrical. Mm-hmm. But what did bringing him into the process add? Well, it became clear to me as we were developing the very last stage of this version of the show that some of the numbers really would need some inventive choreography. Not all of them, but some. And I wanted to get a a choreographer who would come at this with the same kind of freshness that Duncan was bringing to the songs. I didn't want to work with a conventional choreographer who was going to deal with the songs in a musical theater vocabulary. That seemed wrong to me because, again, it's not about steps. This was about an emotional response to the music. And Bill T. Jones is a choreographer I've admired since he first did a workshop back in 1982 or 83 when I was at NYU. And Arnie was there. The two of them were, it was before Arnie died. And it was, he just blew, they blew my mind. And I continued to admire his work over the years. And I just thought this could be really interesting to get somebody who comes from a completely different discipline and to collaborate uh, as an artist coming in and responding to this music and to these songs from outside the realm of what we're used to seeing on stage. And it's been fantastic. I've loved working with him. I wanted to ask you about the the actual staging of it. Essentially, I'm oversimplifying here, essentially a bare stage with a bunch of straight-back wood chairs. That's right. Some other pieces as well, but essentially a lot of chairs and various things happening with those chairs. Mm -hmm. Why why such a simple staging? I should also mention the band being on stage, upstage, Mm -hmm. at the back of the stage. Well, something that I thought was crucial for this was that we would be very fluid moving from the scenes to the songs and that the world of the performing of the play and the world of the interior life needed to be able to we needed to switch back and forth very quickly so i knew that we couldn't really have a set in any again not in any conventional sense and that i wanted to be in a big room that felt more like a performance space or almost an art installation slash performance space slash concert. Mm -hmm. So the fact of the band being part of the visual was really important. And if you're not going to have walls and a a realistic set, then to me, then have as little as humanly possible. Was that in any way dictated by the space you're in? Had you been in a different theater, might you have done it differently? I would have done it very similarly. The beauty of the Atlantic Theater is that it's in a church. Mm-hmm. And so every you, you sort of feel like you're in some kind of liturgical environment. And if the show were to eventually transfer to Broadway, you would still do it pretty much the same? Oh, I would definitely, really? yeah. Yeah, in fact, I would. the question would be, would I try to replicate anything literally that is the Atlantic building, mm-hmm. or would I just incorporate um, the theater structure itself? I don't know. There's something nice about the churchness of it. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, and we have audience on stage as well. Especially is, since part of it is a religious uh, theme with clergymen exactly. in, the, in the show. That's exactly right. 
not to pin you down about what the future of the show is going to be, but as you've talked about the journey the show has taken, now you've finally gotten that production that has been so long a morning. Is there work you still want to do on the show? Do you and, and your collaborators feel the show is is complete? Um, I can only speak for myself at this point, but there's still stuff I would like to do. I'm, but I, you know, I don't know any director of any in any medium at all who doesn't want to keep working on. It. I mean, that's that's the curse of being a director. It's our cross to bear. So, oh, if I only had one more week, we always say in rehearsals. If I only had one more preview. If I only had one more hour. So I'm always wanting to to tweak stuff. But in this particular case, I think because we finally um, got very, very close to what I think it wants to be in its final form, and we've gotten such good response from audiences and critics that um, I think it would be really a shame if we are fortunate enough to take it to the next step and transfer the play. I think it would be really a shame not to fix the things that I think should be fixed. Well... We started by talking about the unusual quality of taking a musical from the work of Frank Vedekind. But interestingly, your first musical on Broadway <laughs> took the work of Pierre Carlet de Marivaux, not exactly uh, another noted musical book writer or source. I know. It's weird, right? I've got these... I, I, I have a very peculiar way of of doing things, I guess. Well, let's go back to Triumph of Love, which was your first Broadway show, and... A very interesting project that grew out of again, in that case, it was done regionally first. How did how did that project come about? That were, that came about because I had um, been hired to direct the national tour of Angels in America, and between my being hired to do that job and actually doing the Angels tour, I had staged a production of the James Magruder translation of The Triumph of Love at Classic Stage Company. But that's the play that you were doing. It was the play, exactly. And in the play, I had some live musicians. And as one of the big transitions in the play, I incorporated a Cole Porter song, What Is This Thing Called Love? And the entire company performed it, and I staged a little dance, a little chasing dance. And it worked like gangbusters, I have to say. It was really a, a, a surprising and fresh thing to see in the middle of, of this classic play, to hear this Tin Pan Alley tune come leaping out, and it was quite seductive. And Margot Lyon, uh, she went on to produce Hairspray, um, was one of the producers of Angels. She came down to CSC, saw the show, and literally we were flying to Chicago the next day to have auditions for Angels in America. And we were in the, on the plane. She said, you know, I can't get that play out of my head. That What a great thing. Shouldn't we do something with that? I wish I, I wish I could move the play to Broadway. But I feel like it should. we should do something. What do you think? And I said, you know, I actually think it could be a really cool musical. And at that moment, that was 94, I think, Margot was just passionately driven to make it happen. And shortly after Angels opened in Chicago, 
We regrouped in New York with James Magruder and Susan Birkenhead, the lyricist, and Jeffrey Stock, a young composer of great potential. And the five of us sat down and started hammering out a musical version. But a musical that in many ways began with a director's concept rather than people who'd sat down to write a musical. That's right. Yeah. So in a sense, Spring Awakening, I didn't come up with, it wasn't my idea to do it, but I was part of the creation of it from the very beginning in much the same way I was with Triumph. So it it feels very much like... um, a, you know, like my child, you know, I feel like I've born this thing for um, many years now. We finally gave birth, you know, I carried it for many years. We gave birth to it. So, Well, after that, you did on Broadway an extraordinary production of View from the Bridge, mm, thank which you. really revealed that play yet again to a, to a new generation. Um, your approach was very stark. Mm-hmm. in that production. I was wondering how you went about tackling View from the Bridge. Well, it's a, there's a funny story that goes with this. I was going to direct a production of Candida by Shaw up at the Hangar Theater. Up in Ithaca. Up in Ithaca. And my mentor, Robert Moss, who founded Playwrights Horizons, was the artistic director. And it was my um, fifth summer up there working. And he was going to direct a production of of you from the bridge and we did auditions together so i was cast in canada and i cast billy crudup as as march banks and and um bob cast ben shankman also who was in my angels at nyu as um rodolfo and you know it was we were in each other's auditions a lot and it was really kind of hilarious to be casting a bunch of things anyway what happened was i got another job and up at the Berkshire Theater Festival, and it was it had it was a direct conflict with Canada, and so I asked Bob if he could change the schedule around, and he said he really couldn't because you know it already went to press, tickets were sold already, and he called back and he said I've got a crazy idea, why don't we swap plays? I'll direct Canada, and you can direct a view from the bridge. We'd already cast everything for each other, you know. We'd already cast our own plays, but then we just. We did it. I, we, I said, I don't know. A View from the Bridge, I, just, I wasn't really... I, I, I thought Arthur Miller was a little bit, you know, old-fashioned. But anyway, I read it, and it just thrilled me. It was... I couldn't... I couldn't... You know, it was a page-turner, and I got really jazzed about it. And I had this idea that it could be really... We could honor his original intent, which was to make it kind of like a Greek tragedy and and see this very personal story and private story played out on the streets of Brooklyn with the entire community watching. And so I did it up in Ithaca. And Who I'm, was the cast you inherited? You told us about the okay. people you gave to Bob. Right, okay. Um, Joe Saravo was Eddie and Karen Browning was B. She ended up covering Alice and Janney when we did it on Broadway. Um, Paula McGonigal was Catherine and Ben Shankman, who um, you guys will know. He was in um, Proof and he was in, he was just in that um, Angels in America on the, the P- film, HBO. The HBO version. Yeah, he played yeah. Lewis. And um, he was my Rodolfo. And there were a bunch of locals that we hired to play all the, the townspeople. 
Well, you did it in Ithaca, then how did it get to Broadway? Well, I thought it was really a good idea, the idea I had. And it was, you know, you can only do so much with two weeks of rehearsal, Uh uh, you know, in summer stock, basically. So I had this hunger to keep going with it and to really see it through all the way. And Todd Hames and I at the Roundabout had been talking about doing something together, and I'd been doing a lot of readings of different things, and at the top of my list was A View from the Bridge, but the rights weren't available, and so I sort of just let it go. I think Circle in the Square was going to do it at the time, but then they went belly up, and Todd ended up inheriting Anthony LaPaglia, who was going to do A View from the Bridge at Circle, Hmm. right? So I got a call from Jim Carnahan from the casting office saying, listen, who do you know over at ICM, which represented the agency, which represented Arthur Miller, who could put in a good word for you because Arthur doesn't know your work. And I had just done a play at the Vineyard. This is ridiculous, isn't it? It's like I had just done a play at the Vineyard by Janusz Glowowski called Antigone in New York. His agent was Bridget Ashenberg at ICM. And I knew that she was a big fan of what I had done on Janusz's play. So I called her up and I said, Bridget, could you put in a good word for me with Arthur? She said, absolutely. She called him up and said, you've got to go see this guy's work. And at the time, I had a play running at Playwrights Horizons called Baby Anger, written by Peter Hedges. So he came to see that production of Baby Anger and he thought the production was very good and he called me and I went and I met him in his Upper East Side apartment. What was that like? I mean, how daunting can it be for a young director who's very proud that he's already done this production of You from the Bridge and suddenly Arthur Miller's coming to check you out? Yeah, I have to tell you, I was terrified. I snuck by the theater and I watched him. I saw him go in and then I, you know, ran down the street and, you know, had a martini or something. Um, And then I was just waiting and praying that the show went well and that he liked it. And the next day I got the call that he was really liked it and wanted to meet me. And a couple of days later, I went up to his apartment. I was completely terrified. Arthur Miller, to me, and God rest his wonderful soul, is and was an absolute giant, you know, and literally, you know, I remember meeting him. Um, I'm, you know, he opened the door to his little apartment and he seemed like he was eight feet tall with a hand like a catcher's mitt. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of launched into my passionate desire to do my take on A View from the Bridge. And he was remarkably receptive. He was delighted. He suddenly seemed like a kid. He was open and excited. And and I talked to him basically through the whole thing, my whole concept, the, um, the idea that it would be an enormous community on stage watching all of this as though it were in an amphitheater and there wouldn't be furniture. I would take out the walls and the doors and the it would just be a table and some chairs and that's it. And the cast would move everything as needed, similar to Spring Awakening in a sense. I mean, it was that kind of very spare staging. And he got really into it. And then I even said, and I want to put back some of the original text from the one-act version that was done in 1955. 
prior to the full-length version. And he said, really? What? And then I quoted him some of the lines that I really liked. And he said, I wrote that? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, it was just, he was adorable. And I said, I feel like this needs to be so passionate and theatrical. And what you were going for with this idea of writing a true American version of a Greek tragedy, where you see what's coming and you're powerless to stop it. I said, that, I, I don't think the play has been done in that way before. And he said, you know, I wrote an opera. He said it just like that. And then <laughs> sure enough, they they didn't William Bolcom wrote an opera version mm-hmm. of it. So anyway, it was heaven. And it obviously worked out because several years later, you had the opportunity to work again with the work of Arthur Miller on the revival of uh, After the Fall. That's right. Which is, of course, constantly discussed as is it or is it not an autobiographical play? He always tried to say that it was not. Did you have the opportunity to talk with him about the real core of that play? Yeah, a lot, actually. Um, He would acknowledge that his life, to me anyway, he would acknowledge that his life had huge impact on that play and that he was very much in it. And every now and then he would refer to Maggie as Marilyn. Mm -hmm. Every now and then he would refer to Holga as Inga, Inga Marath, his wife, um, who was one of the characters. And... He never quite referred to Quentin as himself, but he would sometimes discuss moments with me, and he would really embody the character when he would talk about it. So it was it was pretty clear that this was very much from his own experience. That's interesting. You know, you've worked on Arthur Miller's shows, Youth from the Bridge, and uh, After the Fall, Spring Awakening, kind of heavy work. Mm-hmm. Then there's Thoroughly Modern Millie, You're a Good Man, <laughs> Charlie Brown. Right. Those don't seem to fit into the same category, do they? They, they really don't. <laughs> no, you could try to figure out what they have in common, but but they really are well, since um, different. And part of what excited me about doing them was the fact that they were really different. And I embraced the opportunity to um, really stretch in different ways and to... Um, really see what, you know, what I could do, where where my limitations were, and how to eliminate the limitations. Because as an artist, I think it's really exciting to to not be typecast as anything very specific, so that you could do anything. Well, of course, Millie was a, was a new musical, but mm-hmm. You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown was a revival. It so was a revival, but you, I, I changed a lot of it. I was going to ask you say, how yeah. you made that your own, since it had been done before. Well, um... When I I was in that show when I was in college, really? I played Schroeder. I was a Snoopy. Uh, oh, lucky you! <laughs> well, I love Schroeder, but I, but you know Snoopy really gets you know to show off, and he sort of walks away with the show. Um, Schroeder's a more sensitive kind of artistic type. Uh, when I reread the material, I was a little surprised at how dated it was, and I had been a you know. Peanuts fan my whole life, and I knew that I'd read stuff over the years since 1966 when it was first done. I knew that there was probably a wealth of material out there. So I, I actually met with Schultz. I mean, I've really had like such an, I mean, such an, when I think like Arthur Miller and, and Charles Schultz and. <laughs> You know, Not always uh, mentioned in the same sentence, but in their field, this two giants. Be, this may be a first. But um, I flew out to Santa Rosa and I met with him, and that was really astonishing. He was an incredible person. And we talked through what my thoughts were about it and my dream of updating it. 
and he they, he gave me access to the entire you know the entire peanuts collection from the beginning till right up to that moment and it was enormously entertaining to go through it all <laughs> and kind of mind-boggling and my eyes were sort of spinning around and we went into auditions and I started I just started culling together my favorite little sections and little storylines ideas that I had that might make a good song for someone and we as 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 the process continued and we were casting this girl came in named Kristen Chenoweth who I had seen in Steel Pier and thought she was really talented and she walked in and I just thought Oh my God, she's got to be in the show, but she's not. She's not a Lucy, and she's not Patty. And I had this idea that she could play Sally Brown, Charlie Brown's kid sister. And I went through the material, and it was just such a great match between what she brings to the table as an actress and a singer and a personality, and who Sally was. And that became really key to my understanding of. of how this was going to work because suddenly the the main character the four main characters of people were actually two sets of brother and sister Linus and Lucy and Charlie Brown and Sally and then there was Schroeder who was a little bit of an outsider because he's so into his head and into his music mm-hmm. and then Snoopy who's not even a human being so that filled out the the cast of six. And so where was Clark, Clark Gesner in this process? Clark Gesner was absolutely um, generous in terms of saying, I wrote this a long time ago. This isn't who I am anymore. So take it and do what you like with it. He was amazingly generous that way and a lovely, lovely man. Going back to the casting, Kristen Chenoweth walks in. You say she's not Lucy. Why not Lucy? Why Sally? What was it about her or her ability? She just isn't. There's nothing about Kristen that is the big sister. Uh-huh. You know, Lucy is the the big sister. She's the she she dominates in a a more obvious way. Sally dominates in the way Kristen does, which is in a more insidious way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's something ruthless about and charming about Kristen that was dead on for Sally. Did the real-life Charles Schultz have a sister? The real-life Charles Schultz, um, you know, that's a really good question. Because I don't know. Charlie Charlie Brown was, from what I've heard, patterned on Charles Schultz. Yeah. He, he was Charlie Brown. Yes. So that's who true. were all these characters? Were they real people? Did, did he... he has said, no, what he did say to me is he's all of them. Uh-huh. He never copped to basing any of them on real people. He said, I'm everyone. He said, I'm Lucy, I am Snoopy, I'm Peppermint Patty, you know, etc. So uh, how did you cast the rest of the, the principals? Who was Charlie Brown? Who was Snoopy? Roger Bart was Snoopy. Roger Bart was Snoopy. He, he is such a dog. You know, this is, <laughs> that's the, um, that was the second show we had done together. He was the Harlequin, beautiful Harlequin in Triumph of Love. And uh, he just, he nailed it. And it was undeniable that he was going to be our Snoopy. And Anthony Rapp was doing Rent in London at the time. So he wasn't available to audition. But we'd seen a lot of wonderful people. He sent in a tape. And it was, there was something about how pathetic the tape was. You know, there's something so flat about a videotape. And he did his monologue. He did his, you know, lunch, you know, his lunchtime monologue. And he sang The Kite. And it was heartbreaking and funny and touching 
and very real. So he was our Charlie Brown. Ilana Levine, who is a really hilarious comic actress with surprising depth and um, pathos. You know, she really, she brought a very rich, I think very contemporary sensibility to Lucy. And then at the end of the show, she just gets you with that. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. Lump in the throat time, because she really has that depth to deliver. Stanley Wayne Mathis, um, who I hadn't really seen before. He had just come, I guess I saw him in The Lion King, but I didn't really know him that well. Came in and was, I thought, just a beautiful Schroeder, soulful and sweet. And then there was Kristen, and that was that was our gang of six. Then how did you reinvent the show? It had been done several times before, so what was different about your version? Well, first of all, Andrew Lippa came on as the musical director and musical supervisor, and he not only contributed three new songs, um, My New Philosophy for, uh, for Sally, uh, Beethoven Day, for Schroeder and a new version of Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, for uh, for Anthony and the company. Mm-hmm. But he also reorchestrated and reconceived all of the songs. So none of them sounded exactly like they did when it was just, you know, the toy piano and drums and one other thing. What was the other thing? Bass, maybe? It was just maybe bass, drums, and piano originally and in a very straightforward um, very earnest, sweet arrangement that Clark had done. Um, and what Andrew did that was terrific was he modernized the sound, incorporating, I think, some of the tropes that we had now from a lot of musical theater. There's like the baseball game has kind of like a falsettos, a Bill Finn falsettos kind of rhythm under it, um, just as an example. And the songs had uh, just a freshness to them. He came up with some really good... And it was a show that began as a small off-Broadway show, and even though it ultimately ended up on Broadway very, very briefly, yeah. it it was scaled for for a very different space, and as you pointed out, starting in 66 at a very, very different time. Right. So, So going from that, now let's talk about a big Broadway musical. Thoroughly Modern Millie. That is as big as they come, I think, yeah. How'd you get your hands on that one? Uh, the the writer, the uh, the librettist and lyricist Dick Scanlon is an old friend of mine. We grew up in the same town and knew each other from County Chorus when we were in high school. And we were in a very famous production of West Side Story in 1978. Famous where? (laughs) Only in Rockville, Maryland. (laughs) It was in the basement of the Rockville Mall, which hadn't quite been built yet. Um, it It was next to the police station. And it was famous because it was this modern day version of West Side Story. It was 1978, so we all... Was it the disco version of was, West Side Story? Thank you. That's exactly oh, what it was. Lord. It was the disco <laughs> version. We all wore the platform shoes and the sort of, you know, polyester shirts, and <laughs> and the uh, and the choreography was kind of modern dance, disco kind of thing. It was probably terrible, but we had a really good time, and, and we became great friends, and we rediscovered each other in New York, and at one of our lunches, he mentioned that he was working on 
a, on a stage version of Thoroughly Modern Millie, uh, a movie I detested and remember thinking was pretty racist and sexist and, and, and not so good, even though it had a lot of charm. But Dick had managed to find a core story in the movie that was really stage-worthy. And over a couple of years of just hearing about what he was doing, and my career was sort of moving ahead, um, and and the script was developing, and at a certain point, the script was ready for a director to step in, and it just so happened that my career was at a place where a big Broadway musical wasn't out of the question. So it was just a, it was a matter of timing. And in our discussions and in my thinking about it, we came up with some ideas that made me feel that it really was ready to go to the next step. And we and we did a big reading, reading and workshopped it for the um, National Musical... The National Alliance Musical Theater? Was yes, it done there? that's yep. it. And we did the first act there. and Which also, a couple of years later, gave birth to uh, Drowsy Chaperone. Exactly. Familiar with. That's so, right. real real cauldron of finding musicals. It really is. And we found our producers at that point, Fox Theatricals, um, based in Chicago. They stepped up and they said, we wanted, we want to develop this. And they were, they were really brilliant and gave us the time and the space to really develop it in the right way. It wasn't fast tracked. There was no pressure on us to deliver the goods. Um, shortly after they stepped on, um, I, had the idea to contact Janine Tesori, who had done some work for me on Triumph of Love, really incredibly smart woman, really great musician. And I had seen her, the show that she wrote called Violet, and I was blown away by it. I thought, she's got a great musical mind, and her melodies are beautiful, and, and it had a wholeness of sound. And I thought, she would be great to bring... All of these songs, there were songs from the movie and 1920s songs that we were going to incorporate into a score. Wouldn't she be great to weave them together and figure out a clever way to like make a score out of all of this different stuff? Well, little did I imagine at that moment that she and Dick would form a, a spectacular songwriting team. That was never the idea. Dick had written, rewritten some lyrics from the from old music to suit this new story he'd come up with. And Janine said, these lyrics are great. Why don't we write some songs? And one song led to another, led to another. And before you know it, we've got, it's 75% an original score. Well, you were involved at all, all levels, of, from workshops right through to Broadway, including mm -hmm. in California. And originally, somebody was cast in the role of Millie. And I guess the transition from California to New York, somebody, perhaps yourself, decided to replace the Millie with a tall, young girl in the ensemble named Sutton Foster. Who you got it. There was, yep. What, 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 what was going on there? Well, look, you know, you're working on a, uh, a new show, and the main thing you want to work on is the show. I really believe that. I think that if you try to cast stuff... Um, in a way that could possibly cover up the weakness of the show, you're going to get really screwed in the end because people can make stuff work that doesn't really work, and I think that's dangerous. So at a certain point in the casting process, 
We'd, Sutton had done a couple of readings. I thought she was wonderful. She seemed really right for the part, but her auditions didn't wow us as being that she was really ready to step up and play the lead. But but we knew we wanted her there, and we thought she'd be a terrific understudy. And she's got a beautiful voice, great personality. She's perfect for the. She's definitely in the world of the show. And then we were there were two actors that we were looking at to play Millie, and one was. Um, gave a very smart, confident, very funny, wise performance. And the other sort of sang the shit out of it, but was a little bit of a wild card. And we thought we might have to adjust the story to accommodate her unique gifts, right? So what ended up happening is we went with the, with the actress who we thought could, would deliver the material in the best way so that we could work on it. Even though it wasn't, it wasn't sort of a, it wasn't dead on casting. It was, I, I think, safe casting. And I say that with great respect for her because she's extremely talented and I'd love to work with her someday and no one needs names, right? But what happened was in the middle of rehearsals, she became ill. We were doing a run through and we needed to we really needed to run through it. And Sutton stepped up and was kind of astonishing, having never rehearsed a bit of it. Hmm. She was just doing her homework. So she stepped in to fill in for the sick. Yeah, actor. for that one day. It wasn't uh -huh. even, I think it was running through Act One or a work through of Act One. And we all looked at each other and we thought, holy shit. <laughs> She's amazing. Thank God we've got a great understudy. Mm -hmm. You know, the next day, our lead was still sick. Sutton came in. You know, we we had we worked through Act Two, and she was brilliant again and danced like a dream. And that voice, and that she was funny and charming and powerhouse. And um, we all looked at each other and we said, "Oh, we really can't fire." So and so. I mean, that's just not right. It's, you know what? She's a great understudy. It's the right thing to. We just we open with this actress, and you know we will. And it's just great to know how terrific Sutton is. Day three, our actress is still out sick. <laughs> We'd run through the whole play. Literally, the first song she she started the first song, and um, the first note out of her mouth. And I'm like, she is so playing Millie. <laughs> that poor girl is so, you know, has to go home, I think. Yeah. You know, uh, it's just one of those things. It was undeniable. And there was no ill will on anyone's part. And I think it all worked out for the best because the other actress, I think, um, had some health problems that she needed to deal with. And it all worked out great. But here you are with a $10 million musical about to mm -hmm. move to Broadway, taking a virtual unknown. Sutton had been in a few shows as a replacement, right. but had never had a starring role in a new musical. That must have been a very big decision on your part and the others associated, the producers. Dick and I actually um, insisted on Sutton at, uh, at the point at which we'd opened in La Jolla. It was a really rocky preview experience, but we opened and we got some very good notices and the theater owners in New York were very encouraged and our, our producers were correctly, absolutely gung-ho about coming into town 
and we had a long list of changes that we wanted to make. But one thing that Dick and I, we talked about it. We said, we've got to have Sutton, and we need to make the offer now. And our producers, I think, very wisely got it. We had a meeting with them and said, this is what we should do. We should let, she should know that when this show goes forward, this is her role. I don't want her to think that we're looking for a star or trying to find someone um, else. And then I don't want her to ever think she's the second choice because she won't be. She's my first choice. And I tell you now, she's going to play the part on Broadway. And we made her that offer. Right then and there. And when did you know you had a hit on your hands? Sutton said she didn't realize it until after the show won the Tonys. Then she realized what a hit it was. I, I had a feeling about it from our first preview, uh-huh. actually, because the audience response, and that's a big old theater, you know, that audience response was... The uh, marquee you're talking about? Yeah, the marquee was, was so phenomenal. And it was lumpy at that point, too. There were things that weren't working right, but there was so much goodwill. And that girl stood there with those suitcases in her hand, and my heart just went to her. And I heard that music and those songs that Dick and Janine wrote, and the, those book scenes were so witty and warm and inviting i just thought this is this is going to work and i don't know what the critics will say but it's going to work and and it was again a sort of roller coaster getting through opening night and getting sort of knocked by some of the critics um i think Im- incorrectly at that point but whatever what can you do you don't, can't agree with everyone but um luckily i was i was right about that there's a theme that's developed as we've been talking today and i'm going to pursue it for one more line of questioning mm-hmm. and the theme is we've been following the journey that these shows take and we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the journey of sideman mm. yeah sideman started very small mm-hmm. in a not-for-profit production by the weisberger theater group which produced one show a year and went on can you talk about that really small start for this play by a not well-known playwright mm-hmm. in in a very limited production. We had originally done Sideman in the basement of the West Bank Cafe as part of the Naked Angels um, new play series. And Peter Manning, who was then running the... He was the, I think, artistic director in residence or something, or interim artistic director for New York Stage and Film up in Poughkeepsie. And he said, I'd like to do the play up there. So we thought, how wonderful. So that summer, we went up, I think it was 96. We went up to Poughkeepsie and we did it. It was one of these two-week rehearsals, and then we did it for a handful of performances. Um, And it was a remarkable play, and we had a beautiful cast. Um, Edie Falco, her first play, and Frank Wood, and... Kevin Gear and just a, an Angelica Torn, just a lovely group of actors. And we were hoping to bring it to New York, and it didn't happen right away. But Jay um, Harris of the Weisberger Theater had seen it, and he's a big jazz fan. And he and Peter organized, I think it was a year and a half later, maybe two years later, to do a production at Classic Stage Company, where I first did Triumph of Love, as it turns out. And we did this same production basically um, off broad off off Broadway really, and it was one of those weird things. We didn't have any advertising. 
But word got out really fast, and that little theater was full. Every night we sold out the entire run within a few days. Mm-hmm. The reviews were absolutely glowing, and we were hoping to do the big move uptown. It seemed like a no-brainer, but for some reason, it didn't seem to be happening. And Warren Light, the terrific playwright, and I would sort of look at each other. We'd see these sold-out houses, people jumping to their feet at the end of this very beautiful, moving memory play that Warren had written. And with a sensational performance from each of the actors and we're just thinking what the hell does it take to get something to transfer um but there we were winding down and it was our last performance and we had no nowhere to go that we knew of um todd hames from the roundabout came down to see it he loved it and as it happens one of his plays the look of love this musical review of backrack and david had its tryout in San Diego. He had gone to see it and felt it was not ready. So suddenly he had an opening in his Broadway house and asked us to come up. So we jumped at the opportunity, opened it on Broadway at the roundabout. It did sell-out business for three months or, f- or four months, whatever the run was. And again, tick-tock, tick-tock, no transfer in sight. It was the very last day of the production at the roundabout and lo and behold um, we get the Golden Theater huh. and Christian Slater steps into the lead Robbie Sella had been cast in Cabaret to take over for Alan Cumming so suddenly we had a movie star and a Broadway theater and the rest is history we say lo and behold it didn't just happen that way well you know nothing just happens <laughs> that way but I guess there was some wheeling and dealing going on and uh-huh. and people and suddenly you know you there's always the shuffle for theaters i mean we're we're dealing with that with spring awakening right now wondering what theater might be good for our show what might be available what show is likely to close what show is likely not to come in when it's expected to you know um it's a dance that you do when when real estate is a premium we've been talking about the present with spring awakening currently Mm -hmm. running talking about the past talking about the future uh-huh. What's coming up? Sutton tells me you and she are working on a project together. We are. In fact, we're working on it now. Which um, is? It's, it, the tentative title is Miles, um, and it's a very special, small, four-character musical uh, with a, a book by Keith Bunin, who wrote The um, Busy World is Hushed, which is playing at Playwrights now, and wrote The Credo Canvas, which I directed a couple seasons back. Um terrific young writer and he has concocted a really wonderful story a road story of a a young man and young woman um, who sleep together one Thanksgiving one drunken Thanksgiving weekend and find themselves traveling north from Florida in his pickup truck and all sorts of stuff happens to them emotionally on their journey north and Sutton is playing Molly and um, Matthew Morrison is playing Dwayne. Mm. And then Danny Jenkins and Linda Emond play, are the other two people who play all the other characters. And it's all tied together with songs written by the really fantastic folk singer-songwriter Patty Griffin. And they're really just beautiful, haunting, memorable melodies with 
incredibly insightful psychological lyrics. And Tom Hulse is again producing. And what stage are you at now? I mean, she's we're doing. We're do- the son's a little bit busy with She's Cassie Chaperone. Just a little busy. <laughs> yeah, um, we're just doing a, I guess it's a three-week workshop, I would call okay. it. And we'll do some kind of presentation at the end on July 17th for an, an you know invited friends to come and take a look at what we're working on. And we read that there's a dream project of working on On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. This is an idea I had when I was working on Sideman up in Poughkeepsie. I had a concept of how to how to update it. And I've been trying very hard over the last several years to try to figure out a way to make that happen. And at the moment, I've been talking to Liza Lerner, who, uh, the daughter of Alan J. Lerner. And um, we I think we may end up doing some work on it at the roundabout. That would be... That would be great. I would love to see it at Studio 54 someday. I think mm-hmm. it's a it's a kind of nonprofit idea. Let's just put it that but way. But why – I'm just curious. For a show that was a commercial piece that was made into a film, how does something become a nonprofit idea? Yeah, I don't want to say too much about it because of it, – it's a conceptual thing. I think that um, the, the way I want to approach the story is very different and isn't necessarily – um, automatically a commercial idea. It's a more of a, it's a reinvention, or if you will, maybe a reincarnation <laughs> of, <laughs> on a clear day. So and on that joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, that uh, gives us a very good way to say thank you, Michael Mayer, for being with us mm. today on Downstage Center. My pleasure. It was thank very you. interesting. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.